Volume One, Part Three, eighteen o six, Chapter One, of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. Prince Vasily was not in the habit of forecasting his plans. Still less did he ever think of doing people harm for the sake of his own advantage. He was merely a man of the world, who had been successful in the world, so that success had become a sort of second nature to him. He was always accustomed to allow circumstances and his relations to other men to modify his various plans and projects, but he rarely gave himself a very scrupulous account of them, though they constituted his chief interest in life. He managed to have several such plans and projects on the docket at one and the same time, and thus while a dozen formulated themselves, some came to something, while others fell through. He never said to himself, for example, This man is now in power, I ought to gain his confidence and friendship, and thereby secure myself the advantage of his assistance. Or this, Here, Pierre is rich, I ought to induce him to marry my daughter, and thus get the forty thousand roubles that I need. But, if by chance he met the man in power, instinct immediately whispered to him that this man might be profitable to him, and Prince Vasily struck up a friendship with him, and at the first opportunity, led by instinct, flattered him, treated him with easy familiarity, and finally brought about the crucial conversation. Pierre was under his tutelage at Moscow, and Prince Vasily procured for him an appointment as gentleman-in-waiting, which at that time conferred the same rank as Councillor of State, and he insisted on the young man accompanying him to Petersburg and taking up his residence in his own mansion. Without making any exertion, and at the same time taking it absolutely for granted that he was on the right track, Prince Vasily was doing all in his power to marry Pierre to his daughter. If Prince Vasily had formulated his plans beforehand, he could not have been so natural in his conversation, so simple and unaffected in his relations with all men, not only those above him, but those who stood below him. There was something that ever attracted him to men richer or more powerful than himself, and he was endowed with the rare art of seizing exactly the right moment for profiting by people. Pierre, who had unexpectedly succeeded to Count Bouzoukoy's wealth and title, found himself, after his late life of loneliness and inaction, surrounded and occupied to such a degree that only when he was in bed could he have a moment entirely to himself. He was obliged to sign letters, to show himself at the courthouse in regard to matters of which he had no clear comprehension, to ask questions about this and that of his chief overseer, to ride out to his estate in the suburbs of Moscow, and to receive many people who hitherto had ignored his very existence, but would have been offended and insulted if he refused to see them. All these various individuals, businessmen, relations, acquaintances, were all with one accord, disposed to treat the young heir in the most friendly and flattering manner. They were all indubitably persuaded of Pierre's distinguished merits. He was constantly hearing such phrases as, with your extraordinary goodness, or considering your kind heart, or you are so upright, Count, or if he were as clever as you are, and so on, until he actually began to believe in his extraordinary goodness and his extraordinary intelligence, all the more because always, in the depths of his heart, it had seemed to him that he was really very good and very clever. Even people who before had been cross to him and showed him undisguised hatred now became sweet and affectionate toward him. For example, the sharp-tempered elder sister, 
the princess with the long waist and the phenomenally smooth hair, like a doll's, came into Pierre's room after the funeral. Dropping her eyes and flushing deeply, she assured him how sincerely she regretted the misunderstandings that had arisen between them, and asked him as a special favor, though she felt that she had no right to do so, that she might be allowed, after the blow that had befallen her, to remain for a few weeks longer in the house which she had loved so well, and where she had borne so many sacrifices. She could not restrain her tears, and wept freely at these words. Touched by the change that the statuesque princess had undergone, Pierre took her by the hand and begged her forgiveness, though he could not have told for what. From that day the princess began to knit Pierre a striped scarf, and became entirely different to him. Do this for her, my dear fellow, for she had much to put up with on account of the late Count's whims, said Prince Vasily, giving him a paper to sign for the princess's benefit. Prince Vasily had made up his mind that he must cast this die and get this check of thirty thousand roubles for the poor princess, in order that it might not enter her head to talk about the part which he had taken in the matter of the mosaic portfolio. Pierre signed the check, and from that time forth the princess became still more affectionate to him. The younger sisters also were very flattering in their behavior to him, especially the youngest one, the beauty with the mole, who often embarrassed Pierre with her smiles and her own embarrassment at the sight of him. It seemed to Pierre so natural that everybody should like him, it seemed to him so unnatural that anyone should not like him, that he could not help believing in the sincerity of those who surrounded him. In the first place, he had no time to question the sincerity or lack of sincerity. He had no time for anything, but was constantly in a state of delicious intoxication, as it were. He was conscious that he was the center of an important social mechanism, feeling that something was constantly expected of him, that if he failed to accomplish this he would offend many, and disappoint their expectations. But if he did this thing and that, all would be well, and he did whatever was asked of him, and always imagined that better things lay in store for him. During this first part of the time, Prince Vasily, more than anyone else, undertook the management of Pierre and his affairs. After Count Buzikoy's death, he scarcely let Pierre out of his sight. Prince Vasily acted like a man, who, though overburdened with business, wearied and careworn, was so filled with sympathy that he found it impossible to leave this hapless young man, the son of an old friend, and the possessor of such an enormous fortune, to the play of fate and the designs of knaves. During the few days which he spent in Moscow after Count Buzikoy's death, he kept calling Pierre to him, or going himself to Pierre, and instructed him on his duties in a tone of such weariness and assurance that he seemed to say each time, "'You know that I am overwhelmed with business, but it would be heartless in me to leave you now.' and you know that what I tell you is the only thing feasible. "'Well, my dear fellow, to-morrow we will start at last,' said he one day, closing his eyes and touching Pierre's elbow with his fingers, while his voice had a tone that seemed to imply that this had long, long ago been decided upon, and was now perfectly beyond question. "'To-morrow we start. I will give you a place in my carriage. I am glad. We have done everything necessary here, and I ought to have been at home long ago. Here's what I got from the Chancellor.' I asked him for it for you. You have a place in the diplomatic corps, and are appointed gentleman-in-waiting. The diplomatic career is now open to you. Notwithstanding the tone of weariness and assurance in which these words were spoken, Pierre, who for some time had been thinking about his future, began to make an objection. But Prince Vasily interrupted him, and spoke in that low, persuasive tone which effectually prevents anyone from breaking into a man's discourse, 
and which he employed in case it were absolutely necessary to meet a final objection. But, my dear fellow, I did this for my own sake, to satisfy my own conscience, and there is nothing to thank me for. No one ever complained of being too well loved, but then you are free. You can leave to-morrow. Then you can see for yourself in Petersburg. It is high time that you left these scenes of painful recollections. Prince Vasily sighed. Well, well, my dear, and let my valet follow in your carriage. Oh, yes, I had almost forgotten, added Prince Vasily. You know, my friend, we had some accounts with the late lamented, and so I have collected and kept the money from your raisin property. You don't need it. We will settle it up afterwards. What Prince Vasily called, from the raisin property, was a few thousand roubles of Obruk, or peasant's quit-rent, which he had appropriated for his own use. In Petersburg, just the same as in Moscow, Pierre found himself surrounded by an atmosphere of affection and love. He could not decline the office, or rather sinecure, for he had nothing to do, which Prince Vasily had procured for him, but he was so engrossed with acquaintances, invitations, and social duties, that he felt, even more than in Moscow, the sense of confusion, hurry, and of happiness ever beckoning but never becoming realized. Many the set of gay young bachelors with whom he had formerly been intimate were now absent from Petersburg. The guard were away on the campaign. Dolokhov was serving in the ranks. Anatole had joined the army and had been sent into the province. Prince Andrei was abroad, and therefore Pierre had no chance to spend his nights as he had once liked to do, or in occasionally engaging in confidential talks with some old and treasured friend. All his time was spent in dinners and balls, and pre-eminently in the society of Prince Vasily, the portly princess his wife, and the beautiful Ellen. Anna Pavlovna Cher, like everybody else, made Pierre feel the change which had come over society in regard to him. Hitherto, Pierre, in Anna Pavlovna's presence, had constantly felt that whatever he said was unbecoming, wanting in tact, unsuitable, that his speeches, however sensible they might seem while he was getting them ready in his mind, were idiotic as soon as he spoke them aloud, while on the other hand, Ippolit's most stupid utterances were regarded as wise and witty. Now, however, everything that he said was greeted with the epithet, splendid. Even if Anna Pavlovna did not say this, still he was made to see that she meant it, and that she refrained from saying it only out of regard for his modesty. At the beginning of the winter of the years 1805-1806, Pierre received from Anna Pavlovna the usual pink note of invitation, and with this postscript, the beautiful Ellen will be with us, whom one is never tired of looking at. On reading this sentence, Pierre for the first time realized that a peculiar bond had sprung up between him and Ellen, recognized by other people, and this thought alarmed him because it seemed to place him under some sort of obligation which he could not fulfill, and at the same time it pleased him as an amusing situation. Anna Pavlovna's reception was exactly like the former one, except that the dessert with which she regaled her guests was not Montmartre as before, but a diplomat who had just arrived from Berlin, bringing the freshest details about the visit of the Emperor Alexander at Potsdam, and how the two most august friends had there sworn an oath of eternal alliance to protect the cause of right against the enemy of the human race. Pierre was received by Anna Pavlovna with a shade of melancholy, evidently having reference to the recent loss which the young man had undergone in the death of Count Buzakoy. Everyone constantly felt it their duty to assure Pierre that he was greatly afflicted by his father's taking off, although he could hardly be said to have known him, and in Anna Pavlovna's case 
this melancholy was almost equal to that high degree of melancholy which she always manifested at the mention of the most august empress maria fyodorovna pierre felt himself quite overwhelmed by this anna pavlovna with her usual art arranged the circles of her drawing-room the largest in which prince vasili and the generals were conspicuous was enjoying the diplomat's conversation still another group was gathered about the tea-table pierre was anxious to join the former but anna pavlovna who was in the excitable state of a great captain on the field of battle when a thousand new and brilliant ideas are struggling almost hopelessly for a successful accomplishment anna pavlovna seeing pierre's motion laid her finger on his sleeve wait i have designs on you for this evening she glanced at ellen and gave her a smile my dear ellen you must be good to my poor aunt who has conceived a perfect adoration for you go and spend ten minutes with her and lest it should be very tiresome to you here is our dear count who certainly will not fail to follow you the beauty went over to ma tante but anna pavlovna detained the young man pretending that she still had some indispensable arrangement to complete charming isn't she said she to pierre referring to the stately beauty who was sailing away and so self-possessed and so much tact for a young girl such wonderful capability and dignity it all comes natural to her fortunate will be the man who secures her with her a man even of the humblest position in society could not fail to attain the most brilliant position isn't that so i only wanted to know your opinion and anna pavlovna released pierre pierre had honestly replied in the affirmative to her question about ellen's art of self-reliance whenever he thought of ellen he thought of her beauty and of her extraordinary ability to appear grave and dignified in society ma tante received the two young people in her corner but it seemed as though she were trying to hide her adoration for ellen and make rather a show of awe for anna pavlovna she glanced at her niece as though asking how she should behave toward these people as anna pavlovna turned away she again touched pierre's sleeve with her finger and said i hope that you won't say another time that you are bored at my house and she glanced at ellen ellen smiled back with a look that seemed to say that she could not admit the possibility of anyone seeing her and not being delighted the aunt coughed swallowed down the phlegm and said in french that she was very glad to see ellen then she turned to pierre with the same compliment and the same look during their tedious and dulcetory conversation ellen glanced at pierre and smiled upon him with the same bright and radiant smile that she bestowed upon all people pierre was so accustomed to this smile that it made little impression upon him and he gave it no special attention the aunt happened at that moment to be speaking about a collection of snuff-boxes which had belonged to pierre's late father count buzakoy and she showed him her own snuff-box the princess ellen asked to see the portrait of her husband painted in miniature on the cover that is apparently the work of vinet remarked pierre mentioning the name of a distinguished miniature painter he leaned over the table to take up the snuff-box but all the time he was listening to the conversation at the other table he got up intending to pass around but the aunt handed him the snuff-box passing it directly behind ellen ellen moved aside to give room and as she looked up she smiled in accordance with the custom of the day she wore a dress cut very low both in front and behind her bust which always reminded pierre of marble was so near to him that even with his near-sighted eyes he could not help seeing the exquisite beauty of her neck and shoulders and if he had stooped but a little his lips would have touched her neck he was conscious of the warmth of her body the faint breath of some perfume 
and the rustle of her corset as she moved. He saw not the statuesque beauty which agreed so well with the color of her dress. He saw and felt the whole charm of her form, concealed as it was, only by her drapery. And having once seen this, his eyes refused to see her in any other way, just as it is impossible for us to recall an illusion that has once been explained. "'And so you have not noticed before how charming I am,' Ellen seemed to say. "'Have you not noticed that I am a woman? "'Yes, I am a woman, whom any man might win. "'Even you,' her look seemed to say. "'And at that instant Pierre was conscious that Ellen not only might be, "'but that she must be his wife, that it could not be otherwise.' He knew this at this instant just as surely as he would have known it had he been standing with her under the bridal crown. How would this be, and when would it be? He could not tell, but he was sure that it would be the best thing for him. He even had a dim consciousness that somehow it would not be for the best, but he still knew that it would be. Pierre dropped his eyes, then raised them and tried once more to see that beauty so far off and foreign to him, as it were, which he had seen every day before but he found it impossible. He no more could recall his former thought of her than a man who, having seen a blade of step-grass in the midst and mistaken it for a tree, could ever be deceived into taking the blade of grass for a tree again. She was terribly near to him. Already she had begun to wield her power over him, and between him and her there was no longer any impediment except the impediment of his own will. "'Excellent. I leave you in a quiet corner. I see that you are getting along very well there.' said Anna Pavlovna's voice, and Pierre, coming to his senses with a start of terror, lest he had been guilty of something reprehensible, reddened and glanced around. It seemed to him that all knew, as well as he himself did, what had happened to him. After a little while, when he had joined the large circle, Anna Pavlovna said to him, I hear that you are refitting your Petersburg house. This was true. The architect had told him that it was needful to be done, and Pierre, though he did not know why, allowed the huge mansion to be improved. That's a good plan, but I wouldn't give up your quarters at Prince Vasily's. It's a good thing to have a friend like the prince, said she, smiling at Prince Vasily. I know something about it, do I not? And you are still so young. You need someone to advise you. You are not angry with me for exercising the prerogative of an old woman, I hope. She added this in Russian, and paused as women always pause, expecting something complimentary when they have been mentioning their age. If you marry, that would be a different thing. And she united them in one significant glance. Pierre did not look at Ellen, but she looked at him. But all the time she was terribly close to him. He stammered something and reddened. After he returned home, Pierre was long unable to sleep for thinking of what had happened to him. What had happened to him? Nothing. All he knew was that a woman whom he had known as a child, of whom he had often heedlessly said, yes, she's pretty, when he was told that Ellen was a beauty, might be his. But she is stupid. She acknowledges that she is stupid, he said to himself. There's something revolting in the eye of her exciting my love, something repulsive. I have been told that her own brother Anatole was in love with her, and that she loved him in return, and that there was quite a scandal about it and that was the reason why Anatole was sent away. Ippolite is her brother, her father, Prince Vasily. That's all ugly, he went on thinking, and even while he came to this decision, such considerations are endless, he found himself, to his surprise, indulging in a smile, 
and acknowledged that another series of considerations were arising in his mind, that while he was thinking of her faults, he was at the same time dreaming how she would be his wife, how she might be in love with him, how she might be quite different, and how all that he had heard and thought about her might be untrue. And again he saw her, not as Prince Vasily's daughter, but as a woman, her form concealed merely by her grayish garment. But no, why has this idea never entered my mind before? And again he assured himself that it was impossible, that there would be something shameful, contrary to nature, something, as it seemed, dishonorable to him in this marriage. He recalled her words and glances, and the words and glances of those who had seen them together. He remembered Anna Pavlovna's words and looks when she spoke to him about his house. He remembered a thousand similar insinuations on the part of Prince Vasily and others. And a sense of horror came over him, lest he had bound himself by the very undertaking of such a project, a project which was evidently wrong, and which he ought not to have undertaken. But at the very time that he came to this decision, in the other half of his mind arose her form in all its womanly beauty. End of chapter 1